an awful lot of podcasts or press interviews and whatever deal with the, the very quick it's about the quote it's about the excerpt it's about the shock and the moment and so forth and certainly as we get older and the more experience that we have you, you can't simply discuss so there are dichotomies there are nuances to all kinds of argument and, and discussion that really people need time to talk about and absorb that was actor playwright and host of the plastic podcast doug devaney and i'm john lee and i'm martin nutty Welcome to another episode of Irish Stew, the podcast for the global Irish nation. This episode of Irish Stew is sponsored by the Irish Heritage Tree Program. Celebrate your Irish roots by planting native trees for family and friends in the beautiful Golden Vale of Ireland. Go to irishheritagetree.com and use the exclusive discount code today. It's irishstew10 for 10% off. That code again is irishstew and the numeral 10. Keep the heritage of Ireland green and growing by going to irishheritagetree.com. Well, welcome back to Irish Stew. And today we come to you from Brighton, England. Well, at least our guest is coming to you from there. He's Doug Devaney. Uh, Martin and I best know him best as the host of the Plastic Podcasts. That's his audio exploration of tales from the Irish diaspora, largely the diaspora in England. But uh, Doug made an exception for us last fall when he invited your Irish Stew host to Cross the pond electronically and join him for an episode of his The Plastic Podcast. But we find that Doug is made of much more than plastic. He's an actor, playwright, journalist, resident recordist. We're going to find out more about what that means later. And if you are listening to this right now with small children in the room, please ask them to leave. We'll give you a moment. Doug is also Santa Claus. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Doug. Hello there. How are you doing? Well, that's that's actually how you start the show, right? That's how you start your very much so. Yes. So Martin would like to ask you that question in a different way. Connoisseur will too. I do in fact myself. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, marvelous. Thank you so much. Um, yes, you catch me um, just slowly but surely recovering from jet lag. Um, which is, um, it, it, it's not just simply like uh, moving from London to Brighton, but uh, also um, the fact that I've, I've actually crossed the pond physically um, more recently. I just landed, uh, what, today is Thursday, and landed on Sunday. So I'm slowly but surely coming back into myself, um, having spent uh, two weeks in California. Fantastic. So not only crossed the pond, crossed the country, quite a haul. It was quite a haul. My beloved um, and I went on something of a road trip between San Francisco and then across the Yosemite and then down onto oh. the Pacific Coast, then out to Joshua Tree, then up to Grand Canyon and um, uh, Monument Valley, then across to Las Vegas. Curious place, a nervous breakdown of physical form. And uh, then back up to San Francisco. Um, uh, uh, now we need a rest. Quite a trip. I mean, I've only been to a few of the places you've mentioned. Well, it's, uh, it was it was an opportunity, uh, perhaps an opportunity of a lifetime. So we we're going to grab it with both hands and right. a wheel. <laughs> so, were you prospecting for Irish material, Doug? Uh, well, no, no. But Irish material comes upon you no matter where you are. I mean, let's face it, we're we're, we're pretty much everywhere, and uh, and California is absolutely no exception. Um, more recently, people have been talking about the um, weirdly uh, the um, the Netflix series, The English. Um, and, uh, in, in relation to that, I was asking, um, 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 somebody who was in the same guest house as us in San Francisco, uh, why it is that whilst we talk about Irish Americans and Italian Americans and Polish Americans and German Americans and French Americans, why we never talk about English Americans. And my presumption had always been that there was a kind of like divide, a schism, um, because of empire. Uh, and, uh, and 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 uh, and independence, but uh, but uh, she was saying actually it was because the presumption was Englishness, right? Um, which which kind of turned me about a bit. And um, uh, what's interesting about 
just talking to people generally and and and, and the podcasts themselves I, i'm sure you found that with your with your own investigations is that the presumptions that you made right at the very outset do tend to get turned around i mean so i i i, I genuinely thought that um, that it was a, a similar case of of in England, where we don't talk necessarily about being uh, English Irish, but instead we talk about Liverpool Irish, London Irish, Birmingham Irish, and so forth, because there is a hangover, um, uh, historically speaking, from what we call the Anglo Irish, who were the uh, English settlers and landlords who took most of the country uh, and uh, and presided over it um, um, uh, 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 over the course of the seventeen and eighteen hundreds and uh, and so forth. Um, and I thought that had been that was an echo in America, but no, it was the presumption of Englishness. Um, and as I inevitably say, you can't talk about Irishness without talking about Englishness or Britishness. And I don't think you can talk about Irishness in America without actually talking about American what it is to be American as well. I, it's funny. I, I as a kid, I remember asking my parents. I grew up in a small New England city where it was uh, Irish Americans, Polish Americans, Italian Americans, uh, Jewish Americans, uh, and and. Uh, saying, well, why aren't there English Americans? I remember asking my parents. I don't know if they had a good answer, but I remember being curious about that like when I was a kid. Yes, yeah, and it, it, so, so, so it's, I, I, was, I was talking with a wonderful woman called Qui, um, which was strangely short for Lucretia, and, um, and her, her, her forebears, her ancestors, were amongst the original 400 um, uh, so that the, the survived, survived the Mayflower journeys, Mayflower, huh. and uh, and so forth. And so she was talking about the 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 the, uh, the immigration history of America, where the, those four hundred pilgrims were then followed by approximately twenty thousand nonconformists who had been thrown out of uh, England in all sorts of manners, and that that how the how the how the strips of of migration so I tend to tend to still now color mm. um, uh, approaches and attitudes towards well towards towards government and and, and so forth as well as um, as religion in the states uh, because you forget America is still a young country yeah. I mean it's like the, uh, the 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 four hundred years or so that we, we talk about the English English Irish experience is um, it's like is almost double that of of, of the of the settled. Uh, the, the settled history of America, give or take. Well, us Irish people would uh, actually w- would refer to us as eight hundred years of, of oppression, uh, and maybe uh, so, so. Maybe the the math. Uh, we might argue a little bit about the math a little bit, or, or it, 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 I think I think that probably only reinforces the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you saw about eight hundred years, just <laughs> like um, just 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 what just, just the, the the proportions there mm-hmm. are, are, are there. But I, I take your point, Martin. Mm-hmm. I take your point. I'm feeling I'm feeling totally aggrieved at the, at the moment. You know, by this uh, incorrect historical analysis. <laughs> oh, yeah. you see, it's it's all a matter of time, <laughs> but. Um, let me ask you this, uh, since I, um, I have spent not a lot of time in Britain. Um, let's talk a little bit about accents. Your accent. Mm. Where does your accent come from specifically? My accent comes from all over the place, it must be said. I mean, uh, this particular um, spoken uh, basso profondo, which I, which, which I proudly present, <laughs> Um, uh, is probably only one of the several hundred voices that, that come through, come out of my mouth at some point. Um, I'm initially uh, raised in Maidenhead, which is um, 50 miles west of London. Uh, my dad comes from County Clare, but my mum from uh, a nearby town called Reading. Uh, now, uh, to give you your, your your listeners some kind of uh, sense of this, um, Maidenhead is known more fully as the Royal Borough of Windsor and Maidenhead. Uh, uh, as in Windsor Castle and and so forth. And uh, whilst my voice is like is kind of it's like sounds almost like perfectly BBC, the local accent is much more London uh, with a little bit West Country thrown on in. Um, and so it, go, it goes it goes around a bit like that. So my my uncle's from Reading, for example, will talk to my mum and go, oh, "All right, there, sis, how are you doing?" Um, whereas um, uh, Ricky Gervais in the English version of The Office, and I think people are familiar with that. Uh, that that's based in Slough, and he's from Reading, so it's, it's kind of that sort of accent is the is the local one. So a little bit of London with a little bit of country thrown on in. However, my mum was very insistent that we didn't sound like anybody local. Uh, so both my, myself and my brother resonate like my dad did, um, and still does. But my dad had two accents. Um, one for talking to people, where he was Michael Devaney, Mike Devaney, and things like that. And then um, one for the phone, where he was Mike Devaney, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and changed his accent accordingly. And that 
that again, I think, was down to the fact that, like, uh, in the seventies and eighties, advertising your Irishness was not necessarily a thing that you wanted to do to strangers. I want you to tell us a little bit about that, Doug. Uh, you know, we you do some great explorations of. Uh, you know, the different ways to look at Irishness. You talk about the struggle to feel authentic, how the Irish diaspora still has a lot to say and a lot to learn primarily about itself. Yes. Well, I mean, I I think that's true of true of all diaspora communities, but I think, um, uh, it's emphasized with Irishness simply because of its, because of Ireland's proximity to England and to Britain. And we talk about, we talk about Britain, but essentially I think sometimes we're just talking about Englishness. Um, because Scotland and Wales also have their own unique identities, uh, and, and so on. And I think it's like, um, the, um, uh, and Martin doubtless will have a, have, have a, have a, um, have, uh, a specialized response on, on that, which is that, uh, when we talk about, uh, when we talk about, um, England, you talk about accents, for example, Martin, it's like, um, it's, it's, it's curious. Somebody said about England that you can, you, uh, that in the States, you can travel for 200 miles and still be in the same state. Whereas in England, you can travel for 50 miles. The accents change three times and there's a different word for bread. And, uh, and I think it's like, uh, where, where voices are concerned, we, uh, in, in, in England in particular, there are judgments that are made about those, those, what, those, those fine tunings of accent, uh, and so on. Um, with regards to with regards to the period that we we euphemistically call the troubles, um, I think, uh, and I, 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 to be honest, I, I, I think that the sense of not making yourself known um, by your voice kind of came before that, uh, and certainly an, an awful lot of my my interviewees when they talk about um, their parents uh, or people of my, my my father's generation, my dad's now eighty. And he came across in 1959. So you're talking about then there was a definite sense that you didn't advertise your Irishness. You didn't advertise your otherness, that uh, you always made sure that you had the right amount of change for the, for the bus, that you didn't necessarily go anywhere, um, obvious nor to pick up an Irish paper, uh, uh, and so forth. And I think that became much more, much more emphasized during the, during the period of, of the IRA campaign. Um, particularly on the mainland and so forth, so that you didn't so, get seen as uh, a terrorist by association. Not that that actually probably helped you at all, um, because I think you know, your, your accent and manners are, are given away in all sorts of different in all sorts of different facets, not just through your voice. And I think that you know, it's like people are going to make the presumptions that they make. So your father Doug is from Clare, kind of Clare, yes, and he came over in 1959. That's right. So you kind of refer to the fact that pre the troubles, people were disguising their accent. Do you have a theory as to did he disguise his accent? And if so, why would he or his peers have chosen to do that at that point in time? Well, I, I, I think I think I think because there's 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 still that sense. Uh, probably probably less. I'm not going to make presumptions for my dad. I'm going to so posit a theory though, which is. That even then, Irishness was seen as outsider, um, and I think that um, certainly when you talk to uh, um, people whose whose forebears as I came on in during the the mid fifties and prior to uh, prior to what are called the Windrush generation, who are the uh, the 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 the, the, the Caribbeans and Afro Caribbeans who came on into to Britain in order to in order to find work and found themselves workers like uh, in, in the NHS and in public transport and so forth. The Irish who ended up working an awful lot of building sites and, um, uh, and, and road work and, and trains and, 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 and those, um, what was called the brawn drain uh, by a friend of mine um, from, from, from Ireland. They were uh, it's like, essentially it's like, um, prior to, prior to Windrush, the Irish were considered almost the lowest of the low where immigration was concerned. And so there was a, uh, a sign that went up, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, um, on various different um, uh, 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 landlords' uh, uh, windows and, and, and signs and so forth, that accommodation wasn't going to be allowed to, 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 to Irish uh, or, to, or to blacks or indeed to dogs. Um, it's, it's that sense that's like, you do not fit here. And I think... Um, and there was also uh, Nina, no Irish need apply, which was placed onto uh, job adverts and so forth. And I think it's like um, when when Windrush came along, because it's like uh, oddly, 
um, there is, there is, uh, it's like, um, what, what happened was then that like uh, the Windrush generation came on in and they took that place of being the lowest of the low and the Irish moved up one step on the ladder. But that didn't necessarily mean that there wasn't prejudice or racism or, or, or presumptions about Irishness that, that you'd probably try and disguise in order to just try and get accommodation or work. It kind of happened here with the, uh, the Irish being that first mass wave of different people that came in and then we got bumped up by the Italians. Yeah. Uh, there's a controversy at the moment, um, which is um, about, uh, this is why I'm kind of trying to step lightly uh, around some of these terms. Uh, there's a controversy at the moment. Um, they, um, um, uh, they, a, 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 a black British MP um, wrote recently um, that um, the, uh, the Irish um, Jews and travellers in Britain didn't suffer from the same level of prejudice or type of prejudice that blacks of, um, of African or, or, or Asian uh, provenance uh, suffered from because there was the, the, because they weren't judged by their colour. And she says that like, they didn't encounter racism, they encountered prejudice, which, as I said, is still important, but it's somewhat different. And that created a controversy because there's this notion that somehow there's a hierarchy of, of bias and, right. uh, and, and, and prejudice, which uh, has, has since become something of an argument. Mm. Um, and you can, you know, it's like, I, I leave that open to, to, to other people to debate. All I can talk about is, 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 the, um, is the Irish experience in, in, in Britain from my own family's perspective and from the perspective of my interviewees. Yeah, it's a thorny area, so let's navigate. To say the least. <laughs> let's navigate somewhere else. Uh, your Claire dad, was there many trips back and forth to Claire, and what was your experience there if that happened? Not not that many. What happened was was that uh, dad came across in um, in 59. Um, to, to jump slightly back there, uh, dad uh, was uh, and still is the eldest uh, of uh, 11 uh, surviving brothers and sisters, uh, and his dad died when he was fourteen, uh, and so dad immediately became the breadwinner, uh, and so forth. They tried various different jobs, and uh, out in the west of Ireland, and jobs were fairly limited, so he did all kinds of things—a bit of poaching. Joined the Irish Army at the uh, at, um, uh, uh, underage, uh, was found out, and was like obviously like shipped out from there. Not before he had a very very good St Patrick's meal though. Um, his final job was, was, was working basically as a, uh, it's like a, a handler, um, uh, over at, um, and, uh, Shannon Airport. Uh, but that job was only there because a friend of the family had recommended him and so on. Yeah. And the problem was, was that so if he got sacked or if he defended the friend of the family or anything like that, there weren't that many alternatives. Um, so, um, his uncle, my grandmother's twin brother, my, my uncle Bren, um, caress his soul, um, came across to, to England beforehand. He, he settled in, in, in Maidenhead. It's about 50 miles outside of London, like I say. But also at that point, there were a lot of factories. There was a lot of manufacturing going on. So there was an awful lot of work. And also there was, it's like a, there was the possibility of movement of labor. It's that, that, the old, old story of the fifties and sixties in Britain, where if you, if you lost a job on the, on the, on the Thursday, you get a new one by the Friday. Um, you know, there was an awful lot of manufacturing going on. There was an awful lot of work going on. So dad came across, um, in order to, so, you know, one, have a little more in the way of, um, uh, so, uh confidence that, uh, that he, that he could earn money and also to send money back. Uh, and slowly but surely the rest of the family came across. So I was born in 65, much of the rest of the family, uh, they came across in drips and drabs. Some settled in West London, others in Manchester, but by the mid seventies, uh, all my immediate family had come across from County Clare. So there weren't that many trips back because there was nobody really to go back to. Um, and so we didn't have that traditional uh, notion of every summer we'd go back and like, uh, spend time with the, with the aunts and uncles in, 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 in Ireland because, you know, so without wishing to put too fine a point on it, that, that there wasn't the money to go back or indeed to have us to come over. Um, the west of Ireland at that time was a very, very impoverished area. Yeah. Uh, Doug, uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, growing up. Uh, was it a really an Irish enclave you were in and, and how did you navigate your way to your, I'll, I'll just sort of encapsulate it by saying storytelling career. Ah, well, now then I grew up on a council estate. Um, um, it was called the Bomber Estate um, in Maidenhead. And it was so named because every single uh, street was named after a World War II bomber. 
so there was Lancaster Avenue, um, uh, the Blenheim Road, etc., uh, etc. Et Even the local pub was named the Merlin after the engine. Uh, all except our road, Aldershaw Mules, uh, which had been named after a local mayor who wanted his name on the on the on the new estate. Um, and so. Um, there were there were there were there were a lot of Irish in there, but there was an awful 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 lot of Londoners who come across and so like, uh, whose whose families had settled after evacuation uh, during the war. Um, there was um, th- so you were kind of aware of Irishness as much through the church uh, as anything, and it wasn't hugely well established. Um, uh, our local church, St Edmund Campions. Although um, was really so like a, that actually didn't get a physical building until the mid eighties, uh, and uh, so you you you, you did um, Sundays um, Sunday services over in the hall of the local school, um, and uh, you kind of so it, the weird thing was that you kind of you were aware of your 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 Irishness simply by the virtue of the fact that you kind of gravitated towards each other. Yeah, yeah. You didn't just have church. You also had this this sense of like uh, all of a sudden you saw, like, realized that half of your friends were were from across the water uh, without really knowing it. I mean, obviously, when you had friends like Alan Patrick Murphy, uh, that would be fairly obvious. Um, Al, yes, born on the twenty fourth of December to parents named Joseph and Mary, and they still called him Alan. I, um, yeah. Man who hated Christmas. Um, <laughs> only one present. There you go. Uh, but but, but you, you you found some gravitation. I, th- I think because it's like there, there there are, and I don't want to. It's like you, you get into really weird territory when you talk about this sort of thing. But there are shared currencies, and there are shared uh, uh, there 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 are shared interests and, and and so forth. So it's like it's not surprising that an awful lot of uh, of us would end up. Say for example. Um, Knowing about the cowboy movies that our parents loved, uh, in a way that like uh, the the Irish tend to love a cowboy movie. Um, I, al- I always I said that the um, that there was um, only three genuine albums in a um, in a, in, an, uh, in an in an Irish record collection. One was a bit of country, one was an Elvis, and one was like a, a show band like the Flingles. Um, the you 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 kind of had the same uh, a, a lot of the same like uh, physical and social vocabulary. And I think so. You just tended to kind of drift in together. So I wouldn't call it an enclave as, as so much as just like a, we kind of gathered like a school of fish. It's interesting to me because you know I, I I grew up in you know the Irish. I went to the Irish church, but you know everybody around me was some other variation. Then there were other Irish Irish Americans, but uh, you, there, there wasn't the. It sounds like there wasn't that overlay of GAA sports and uh, uh, Irish dance and tin whistle lessons and no, because we weren't we we we, we weren't um, we weren't that urban. We weren't so much in the in the, in the middle of a city. I think so like, um, where if you're talking about Birmingham or Liverpool or Manchester or London or anything like that, you definitely have much more obvious Irish enclaves and so forth. But where where a, 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 a town like Maidenhead, where an awful lot of people come in for work, meant that there wasn't necessarily an Italian area or a, um, a, a, a an Indian area or a Pakistani area or an Irish area and so forth. You just kind of like rubbed along in along the, se- the same sort of ways, but you kind of knew where your where, 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 you, where your fellow entities or your, your, your fellow Irish plastic paddies were. <laughs> so talk to us about leaving Maidenhead. If we follow uh, along your path, what different other enclaves have you found yourself in? Is it a peripatetic lifestyle or is it, uh, you know, a more rooted in a particular location? It's it's weird. I, I started studying in Liverpool. Um, I went from the, um, the 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 southeast to the northwest, and you can't get a more Irish city than Liverpool. Um, I started off trying to be a lawyer. Um, I, I went for a. Um, uh, for, uh, it's like a, what happened was it's like um, I was the first of our uh, first of our family that was likely because of the lack of educational possibilities uh, prior to that to actually get to a university. So my dad's side went like, "Well, you're going to university." What are you going to do? Make it something you can use. And because I'd seen, there used to be a series in Britain called Crown Court. Um, and I'd watch Petrocelli, uh, for, for fans of 70s TV. Um, 
uh, and so forth. And so I had this this wonderful idea that I'd, I'd somehow be a, a verbose, verbal, verbal crime-busting lawyer uh, somewhere along the line, and so decided I'd study law. By the time I got and that was, I decided that around about the age of 12. By the time I got to 16 or 17, I wanted to be Jim Morrison. Uh, and so um, I, I went to Liverpool and so I followed this educational pattern in order to try, try and study law. And I got to Liverpool and started studying law. And it, it and me weren't, weren't best bedfellows. Uh, and um, so I, I dropped out after a year and um, I went to study drama and English at what they call a polytechnic, uh, which is now also a university. It's basically art college. Um, drama and English. Um, and, uh, I didn't become Jim Morrison, but I did start writing plays. Um, and, um, bits and pieces. Um, I, I, I kind of, I kind of, I was kind of rootless for quite some time. Um, after, uh, after university. Um, uh, I, I lived in, lived in Cambridge for a while. I lived in London for a while. I tried my hand at all kinds of things. I wasn't quite sure of where I was going. Um, I, uh, I, I moved to Brighton. Uh, I met someone, I moved to Brighton. Um, we had children and, um, uh, Jack and Sean, uh, who are now 30 and 26. Um, it's quite incredible that, um, they survived me. And, um, it's, it's only, I think much more recently I, I, that like, I, I think Irishness has always been part of me and on my shoulder and so forth. But I think it's only more recently. And I think it's particularly as I've been aware of the, the aging nature of my, 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 my parent, my, 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 my dad's, um, generation of family and so forth. And that sense that something may be lost once that, once they go, um, um, I don't want to sound maudlin or anything like that, but there, 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 there is a sense that it's like um, their 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 experience and their style of life. The fact that, say, for example, there's my auntie Maureen, um, who is absolutely marvellous, but it's like, uh, but, uh, but part of her has never left County Clare. Um, she still listens to Clare FM on 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 the radio. Uh, she's still very much engaged with the church in a in a very 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 traditional fashion. Uh, and so forth. Um, but half of that family that are in Manchester, they'll, they'll, they'll talk with the Irish accent. And the other half will talk with the Manchester accent and talk like that. And you, you can kind of see where the, where the generational divide has happened. And I don't want some of that, that to be lost forever just to the air. Uh, uh, but it's not just about my family. It's also about like, those other stories about what it is to, to come to a country and feel as though you're kind of outside. And also the, the inheritance that you have of sight. You never, I feel as though that itinerant nature that, uh, that I've had, that, that kind of slightly wandering lost aspect is partly because I've never been quite sure of who I be, who I am until much more recently. You know, as an outside observer of the Irish in Britain, I'm curious as to the difference between the Irish in America and the Irish in Britain. So the Irish in America are very kind of front-footed, chest-thump, wear the green, etc. It strikes me in Britain, because of the nature of various prejudices that seem to have been foisted upon the Irish, that people kind of quickly have lost that identity, you know, within one or two generations. Do you think that's a fair description? Because that's kind of what you're, you seem to be saying to me there. I think that's relatively fair. I think that's relatively fair. I mean, so obviously individual cases are individual cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do feel as though there is a sense that by the time you get around to third generation, that, that the, 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 the connection is thinner, weaker, um, paler, if you will. Um, uh, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. I mean, so like, uh, answer on two sides of paper. I suppose it's uh, that, 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 that sense that, so like, uh, are you constantly going to, so like, uh, still hang on to a mythic past or look towards the future in, 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 in the new home? Um, or do you lose something, um, that you'll never get back by, by just letting go? Uh, and do you lose that connection to your, 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 your forebears and your ancestors? I mean, it's like, um, my sense of it is is that the past shouldn't be necessarily beholden to, but at least not, for, but not forgotten either. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's like um, I, I, I talked to somebody um, recently, well, last last fall, um, which is, and she said, "You are your ancestors' wildest dreams." 
Uh, and I think that's an incredible phrase to use uh, about progress. But it also means that you remember your ancestors yeah. and the dreams that they had. And the dreams that they had may be very, very simple ones. It may just be simple ones of, sort of like getting enough money to your family so that they can survive. Um, I think the, um, I think the, the British American, the British Irish experience is colored by the fact that it's a British Irish experience rather than an American Irish experience and an American, uh, American history. And please correct me if I'm wrong, has this sense that, they, that is known as manifest destiny. Um, this, this, this sense that, that, that striving forward and moving forward, you, you bring your identity with you, but you move forward and there, there's something to move forward towards. Whereas I think Britain has been more like a haven, mm-hmm. uh, in an awful lot of cases. Um, and, and when people shelter, sometimes they shy back. Right. I would, you know, my take on it would be this, um, the Irish, when they came to America, the Catholic Irish, now I'm speaking about, talk about them, the poor Irish, um, when they showed up in America during the famine period, you know, maybe, maybe slightly earlier and thereafter, it took them a hundred years to get accepted. It was to some degree, not until the election of JFK that all of a sudden Irish Catholic Americans became mainstreamed. The English case seems to me has been obviously heavily colored by the troubles of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now you've gotten to a point where it's safe to stick your head up above the parapet that all of a sudden Ireland is no longer the poor, ignorant country that a lot of times it was, you know, considered to be, if anything, Ireland, because of its economic and, and cultural success now, has become cool. But I'm not sure how much longer that will take for people to kind of feel good about that and embrace it. I think you're right in an awful lot of ways. I think it's it's a, it's a, it's a more... Uh, it's a more complicated question than that, I, I think, though. I mean, like, for example, every November the 5th, we mark the burning of a, a Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, we have we, we have um, a bonfire night. We have Guy Fawkes night, and so forth. And now there are an awful lot. Of, it's like I was watching a history program about about this sort of thing. There are an awful lot of attempts to sort of get rid of James the uh, First, not necessarily the most popular king, and so forth. But the one that is absolutely, definitely uh, marked and, and, and celebrated, and has done for the last what three hundred, four hundred years, uh, and, and, and so forth, which is why I think where my four hundred year um, number essentially comes from is um, is Guy Fawkes, uh, a psycho, who's essentially psycho, Irish Catholic, and I think that one of the reasons why that was turned into such a, a great big public celebration was in order to make sure that the Irish knew their place uh, in, in, in this country. And psycho, not very far from, from 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 Brighton, there's an area called Lewis, and Lewis has a notorious uh, bonfire um, uh, that, that takes place where. Um, it's it's a relatively recent one, but it has some some rather curious uh, traditions. Uh, one of which is to actually like, uh, sing a song about burning the Pope. Mm. Um, and you know, it's like uh, when, when when you have these kind of like, uh, the, the, these kind of things like uh, turn up almost without thought, um, then it's very easy to sort of like go, how far above the parapet do you want to put your head? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, John O'Donoghue, who was the first interviewee on uh, on, on the Plastic Podcasts, talks about. Um, the uh, uh, Irish um, quarterfinal appearance in um, Italia '90 in the, in the in the World Cup as being that moment when the Irish and England could finally put, place their heads above the parapet and so I say we can compete on your level. And not only that, but because the Irish team, Jack Charlton's team, was so comprised of so many Irish diaspora football players, it created a certain amount of um, controversy in Ireland. As um, um, uh, an old friend of ours, Brian Bean. Um, a father of one of your guests, Janet, uh, Brian, as, as I said, Jack Charlton's a fine man, but you think you'd let some of our lads play once in a while. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, but, uh, but, but it's like, um, that was the moment that, that the Irish felt as though they could, or the, uh, the, 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 the Irish diaspora in this country felt as though they could put their heads above the parapet and so forth. And there's also an obverse thing. I encountered the term plastic paddy when I was in Clare. And it was uh, from one of my dad's cousins, uh, cousin Packy, uh, who um, who asked me about myself. I was talking about Liverpool to London to Brighton, and so I went, "Ah, you're a plastic," uh, and simply so dismissed me as that because there is a level of guilt. There's a level of guilt by association by the fact that you have your your part of your ancestry, my English part of my ancestry, has been part of that 800 years that you talk about, Martin. 
And uh, the, 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 somewhere along the line, there are some who consider that anybody who's really engaged with the English, I mean, so this is a, a t- an old old notion. I'm sure it's, it's, it applies only to a, a tiny, tiny minority nowadays uh, in an Ireland that has actually become a hugely forward-thinking 21st century nation in a way that like, uh, England can sometimes look upon and wonder. Um, but... It's it it, it 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 is the case that you carry you you carry sort of the guilt of Englishness with you as well as the um the, sorry, you carry the guilt of Englishness in Ireland and so like and, and the um and, and and the fear of Irishness in England and uh, that's a very very different experience to the one that you might have in America. It's a long answer to a short question. Well, uh, maybe we'll get back to it because Martin has a, an English uh, heritage as well that uh, comes out uh, every now and then in podcasts, and we're we're it's a, it's an interesting point of discussion for us. Uh, Doug, let, let's get back to uh, Doug, the man, the myth, the legend, the legend, the the yes. uh, the, the beloved uh, voice of the plastic <laughs> podcast. You know, give us a little more. You know, I have to say we. We come in fairly prepared for all our guests because we, you know, we bone up on their LinkedIn profiles and their bios and their histories. We we don't have such a great sense of uh, step A to step B, how you move through different parts of your career, how you put bread on the table, and then ultimately how you ended up with this podcast. Uh, okay. Um, so, yes, the, the, the positive personal biography. Um, I... I raised my children um, for, for for about ten years of my life. Um, um, I, I'm I'm divorced, and so we're talking about my ex-wife here. Um, and uh, she worked while I while I while I raised the children. We had a a, 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 a turnabout in the traditional uh, marital uh, situation. At that time, I was, I was like also a struggling writer um, and occasional actor, um, and it was. Um, uh, and, and, and inevitably, it's like um, it's very, very difficult for any parent, particularly the 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 the, the domestic parent, the domesticated parent, um, to, to to find themselves a, a career simply because you are essentially at the behest of your children. If they're going to be ill, um, then your plans go out the window. If, uh, if if something happens, you have to be able to drop everything. And so, an awful lot of jobs that I took were, were ones that were kind of essentially casual. Uh, I worked in the local library. Which was absolutely marvelous. Um, my love of books and film meant that I could engage uh, engage in that form. I I worked uh, I worked in various bars, much the same joy. Um, and uh, but I also worked as a cleaner. I'd work as um, a telephone sales. I'd, I'd take pretty much any and every job, but it, they would inevitably be jobs that like uh, had no real future to them, simply because I had a commitment elsewhere. Um, as they grew older, um, and also. Um, it's like other, other other things took took place in in life. Um, uh, I, I I was able to like be be freer in order to like pursue more in the way of performing. And so you mentioned Santa, Santa, Santa. Uh, so Santa and what used to call event work used to be my bread and butter, along with okay. uh, al- al- along with acting. Um, uh, so where the acting was concerned, I um, I, I did a number of one man shows. Um, because that way I knew I could turn up for rehearsals, uh, and 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 also 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 because like uh, you know they were cheaper to put together. Uh, so I did a number of one man shows, um, particularly particularly about myself because I find myself endlessly fascinating, uh, mm-hmm. as doubtless you discovered, and um, the angina uh, monologue, the the angina monologue, but that was preceded by mind gut. Uh, the, the the story of the story of one man's losing battle in the war against obesity. Uh, I was a lot bigger back then, um, uh, and uh, yes, I, it's like um, I, I wrote about the, um, uh, the 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 moral panic that was taking place at that point uh, um, about obesity in this country. I don't know if it, it, it was shared in America, um, but but certainly we had that. And um, you know, I, I get people like shouting shouting insults at me in the street about my, my weight and so forth. It's a curious thing. Um, uh, and you know, some people say, "Well, you could you could diet," uh, but yeah. Um, but the, it's 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 uh, the politics of food were kind of interesting, um, as well as the fact that so once upon a time, a man of um, of substance, as we might say, was once considered to be a a, a, a man who'd like uh, earned enough in order to like uh, get that substance. Um, uh, and and now it's like uh, it's seen as indulgence 
um, as, as 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 somebody once said, like, uh, yes, like a, uh, obesity is a sin, and um, and what's I was anorexia is a disease, and obesity is a, is a lifestyle choice. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I, but I, I, I did that mind gut, and at one point I, I ended up like um, it's strange what people get interested in. I I, I was performing it, and the 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 the, 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 the climax of the tale um, finished with me um, uh, engaging with a, a bit of roast chicken in what can only be seen as described as an obscene fashion, um, and uh, there were Guinness involved as well. Um, there goes the sponsorship, and. Um, so, uh, so anyway, it's like a, I, I was performing downstairs in a venue in Brighton, which is um, for American listeners. It's like a, if you consider it like a very, very cheap San Francisco, you wouldn't be far off. Uh, it's 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 a lot of hills. It's also very bohemian. It's a it's a huge LGBTQ plus um, centre of, um, of 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 life and activity and so forth. It's uh, the, the Brighton Festival is currently ongoing, and it's the largest arts festival in England. That sort of thing. Um, and so, but, uh, so I was performing downstairs at a vegetarian and vegan, um, venue. And of course, um, somebody suggested that I might want to actually warn as so I, 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 so I have a word with the venue, uh, that, that I was doing this with, with a chicken, a roast chicken. Uh, and, uh, they said, well, you might want to put a warning on the door. Um, and so having, I, 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 I qualified as a journalist as I can, because I, 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 Writing is essentially like um, at the heart of what I do, and communication and writing are, 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 are at the heart of anything that I've, I wanted to try. Uh, and um, so I, I contacted a local journalist of my acquaintance, and I said, "Is this a story?" And she went, "Of course, it's a story." Uh, and so <laughs> I, I, I'm posing outside the venue, wearing a Hawaiian shirt and eating chicken, whilst the various denizens of the um, of the of the vegetarian vegan restaurant look upon me as though I'm a complete maniac. Um, it turns up on the local paper. I then get approached by various other uh, national newspapers. I'm phoned up in the middle of rehearsal by a, a, a newspaper known as the Daily Mail, um, to whom I wouldn't normally give house room, but they were on the end of the phone. You, you, you try to be polite. That's the British part of it. Um, and, uh, and they said, do you think this is political correctness run mad, which is where I draw the line at any interview. Um, uh, at, at some point, the, the the newspaper The Sun put a put a put a put a, um, a put a story up there. But instead of having a photo of me, they had a picture of a roast chicken as part of a dinner because Sun readers need that kind of visual aid. Um, <laughs> it, it 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 turned up on Fox News. It turned up in Polish news. It turned up all over the place. I wanted to be in highfalutin big broadsheet newspapers. Uh, the, 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 the equivalent of the Washington Post or, 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 or something like that. Instead, I'm in the comics. Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, it's like it, it, it became something of a, it's like a weird cause celebra for about it's like, you know, 48 hours. Um, uh, and that, that was odd. Uh, I had a heart moment and I, I, I put together something called the angina monologue. I, I collapsed in the middle of the street whilst carrying a ukulele. Um, uh, like you do. Um, was it a heavy was, ukulele? It wasn't that heavy. No, the strings were quite light. Um, uh, I was, I was, I was off to do a, um, a performance for a, uh, a breast cancer charity. Um, boy, did I pick the wrong charity? Um, collapsed in the middle of the street. Uh, got caught. I'd say from smacking up my, my head on the pavement by by another actor. This is what Brighton's like. It's like San Francisco. You can't move for thespians, and you. Um, Went off. I did did the gig because I was adrenalised. Went across the side of the You'll never have no idea what happened to me because of my chest. I felt like my heart was coming out my chest. My eyes were rolling in the sockets. I collapsed into basically white cotton wool as far as I was concerned. Uh, it was a real kind of whole, so archetypical near death experience and so forth. Uh, and it was only when trying to run for a bus afterwards that I suddenly see someone. Oh no, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and ended up in hospital and lying on the lying, lying on the gurney, as they say. And, uh, and and as the nurses were gathered around and, and, and so forth, I thought, I've got a title for a show, <laughs> um, which was the Angina Monologue. Um, you've got to have a heart. Uh, so toured that up and down, um, and so forth. It's, uh, and so an awful lot of the work that I, that, that I ended up doing as a performer as a performer, was either biographical or investigatory. So um, as, uh, as with, with uh, Chronicle Theatre, which I set up, um, we, um, we, we lived as homeless in Gatwick in order to do a piece about the homeless who live in Gatwick. Um, so real sort of like, you know, it's like ger- a journo aspect of, of things. And so people's stories have always been central to, to what I've done. And so I think that kind of rolled into doing the, um, 
uh, the, the, the the plastic podcasts. Initially, what was going to happen was after Brexit um, that took place, there was a huge rush for Irish passports, and I was part of that rush. Um, it has to be said, I am not just a plastic paddy, but what's also described as a passport paddy. Um, uh, and I was going to write a piece partly about my family, partly about their um, their story, but also about that that whole movement of Irish identity in Britain from essentially being sort of the, the, the butt of uh, thick mick jokes and suspicions with the IRA and, and, and so forth, through to a kind of acceptance in the 90s with um, with, with, with the World Cup and uh, and U2 and so forth, and it's like a, an Irishness sort of becoming a kind of, um, uh, it's like a, a, a modern, um, uh, it's like a, a modon artistic creed, creed and call courtesy of music and so forth, into a, it's like um, uh, the Irish passport now being your last exit from Brexit. Uh, and that, 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 that seemed to me to be a, a, a neat little, it's like a narrative arc to, to follow. And then COVID happened. And uh, all my intentions of putting out a one-man show uh, went, disappeared on on on, on the wind. Uh, however, I, I had intended on on starting to interview members of the Irish diaspora in order to get their their perspective. So I can't continue with the, with the interviews because, like uh, like we three here, the interviews could take place at a at a, at a, at a medically um, medically approved distance. And uh, and as a result, the the, the podcast started, uh, and initially they were going to simply, simply be an adjunct to the show, but they took on a life of their own. As I realised that that neat little narrative arc that I talked about wasn't a neat little arc at all, and it was spiky, and it went off in different directions, and it incorporated uh, aspects of, of Irishness that I'd not really thought of um, um, about like uh, the way that like, cities identify themselves in this country. Uh, as with, with, with their Irishness, so there is a London Irishness, there is a Birmingham Irishness, there is a uh, a Liverpool or a Manchester Irishness, which has as much to do with the city as it has to do with the Irishness. Um, the, uh, about uh, mixed race Irishness, about the 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 status or otherwise of Irish travellers in this country, and also of their status within the Irish diaspora themselves. Um, it became uh, Irishness became a jumping off point then for for, for the individual stories, um, and. Uh, to, 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 to finish this particular monologue with a cliche, everyone has a story. <laughs> you know, one of the stories that I, I think it's the first of your episodes I listened to that really made a big impression on me, and it encapsulates a lot of what you're just talking about now. And if I'm saying his name correctly, Anthony Ekundayo Lennon. Anthony Ekundayo Lennon, yes, indeed. And the story of the sort of the genetic echo. That, that's a, that was a great entry into your the plastic it's, podcast. It's a, it's a fascinating story. It's it's exceptional in so many ways because um, um, just to give a brief brief summary of the of the episode for for your listeners, uh, Anthony uh, and uh, and his brother um, were born to two white Irish parents from Dublin, uh, born in West London. Um, they, they were, but they they were born with the uh, with with the coloring and facial features of mixed race African children. Uh, uh, and the suspicions that uh, Anthony's father had about psycho, what what had happened with his wife, uh, the 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 prejudices that they encountered as 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 people from a white family who were considered ostensibly black in in the nineteen seventies and eighties, where, um, where 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 police um, police activity towards young black men was um, hostile to say the least, particularly in, uh, in particularly in London. Uh, and the presumptions that were made about him uh, in all sorts of ways, uh, frankly heartbreaking. Um, um, but it came to a head when uh, actually it's like he um, he became a theatre director and was granted a bursary by the Arts Council in England um, as a, a director with a uh, um, um, uh, a, a black and African um, arts uh, theatre company. And then somebody said, you know that he really comes from a white family, don't you? And then this all blew up about him somehow identifying as black Whereas In fact, all he was doing was identifying as himself. Um, and that, that, that 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 particular episode asks so many questions about about identity, about how we identify ourselves, about how the world identifies us, um, and the fact that he came through it um, with anything like the the grace and dignity that he has is something of a miracle. Um, it is um, 
without wishing to plug myself too much um, before the, the the shameless plug um, section of your of, of of your podcast. Yes, if you are to listen to any of the podcasts that we do, I would um, and I hope you listen to them all. Uh, I would recommend Anthony Akindayo then and amongst them. Yes. I kind of agree with, uh, well, I haven't listened to all your podcast episodes and shame on me, Doug. Uh, but Shame on you, Martin, shame <laughs> on you. But uh, I, I agree with John. I, I think that's an astonishing story. Uh, and there's so much to be learned about, you know, genetics, um, you, you know, which, as I understand it, at least at some point, provided some relief to your guest. Uh, yes, um, because his story had always been questioned. And then, uh, but I will leave our listeners, uh, and we'll put that in our show notes, that particular episode, because I think it's, it, it's an astonishingly good piece. And I really, I was fascinated and found it educational and enjoyed it, you know. He's a remarkably brave individual. Uh, it took uh, it took a long time for us to actually be able to get together and do that, because I, I think he was naturally... Um, Disinclined to sort of necessarily talk un- until we'd, we'd, we'd established um, sort of an, an element of, of, of trust and communication with, within communication. But you talk about how the podcast has taken you down channels, unexpected channels. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Anthony's story is obviously one. Is there an- another one that jumps to mind that you can tell our listeners about? Along with Anthony's, I, I think so there are the interviews that I've done with members of the Irish traveler community. And there are three of those that you can um, uh, you, you, you can find amongst my my various um, various different interviewees. They've been they've been fascinating as much as it's like um, you become aware of another level of prejudice. You become aware of a prejudice of Irish against Irish, um, where the, the 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 fact that you are you are born into a community. Um, who, to all intents and purposes, look and sound exactly the same as the rest of the community. This isn't like um, again. We talk about the uh, the talk about the British MP who talked about um uh, almost this hierarchy of, of of racism versus prejudice and so forth. Here, on the outside, pretty much everything's the same, except for one thing: one one group of travellers and one group are settled, uh, or rather, not travellers, because there are such things, such people who are, who are, who are settled travellers. So, and the the the, the prejudice that exists against them, both in Ireland and in this country, is a reminder that perhaps we we uh, we might have a tendency sometimes to look at um, the situation in Ireland as I go because it has become so progressive that everything in the garden is green, uh, and it's not necessarily the case. Uh, and also to look upon the prejudices that that we have in this country to 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 a to a to a to a to a, to a community who have been essentially vilified by, by an awful lot of what we would much call the liberal press. Um, Channel 4 in this country is considered like a, to be a, um, uh, a benchmark or was considered to be a benchmark for, 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 for liberal broadcasting, but has put out a number of like, um, rather distasteful uh, programs, such as my, my, my Big Fat Gypsy Wedding um, or The Truth About Traveller Crime, um, <laughs> where the presumption is that the 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 the, the, the travellers are, are are somehow not quite uh, honest or right or, or 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 entitled to their own sense of sense of tradition and community, um, but they are, but they they they, they essentially become that equivalent of uh, Punch magazine in the eighteen in the eighteen hundreds and 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 their representations of Irishness back then. Uh, yeah, Doug, I, I would agree with Martin. I don't really, outside re- really your podcast and some other reading, I, I'm not too familiar with the stories of the travelers, but I, I did have one association uh, a few years back was over a film called Knuckle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a, it was a documentary of the sort of uh, traveler boxing yeah, the tradition. Thing. And it was a, it was a film that was uh, screening here in New York and I was involved with the pr- promotion of it. And I met some of the, the travelers who were, were in the film. And I, I have to say, that's probably really the extent of my knowledge outside of what I've learned from your podcast. 
I have to emphasize, I don't pretend to speak on behalf of the, the, the their communities. Um, it would be well, wrong you, you to, let people, you, you, you've given people a platform to speak on their own behalf. Yes, because I think the, 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 the thing about the podcast, and I'm sure you guys have, have, have much the same sort of thing, is that it's like, um, the more that people are able to speak, the more understanding uh, is, 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 is available to us all. And also giving people time to speak is the, is the hugely important thing. Um, an awful lot of podcasts or press interviews and whatever deal with the, 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 the very quick, uh, the, 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 it's, it's, it's about the, it's about the quote. It's about the, um, uh, it, it's, it's about the excerpt. It's about the, the, the shock and the moment and so forth. And, Certainly, as we get older, it's like, uh, and the more experience that we we we, we have, you, you can't simply discuss. Like there, there are dichotomies, there are nuances uh, to to all kinds of argument and, and discussion that really people need time to um, to, to to talk about and absorb. Um, Brian Eno once said that sometimes we talk in order to find out what we're thinking, mm-hmm. and I think that's very very true. And I think it's like uh, sometimes um, uh, the opportunity. Uh, to actually talk at length to somebody gives them also the opportunity to work out what it is that they're they're saying. Doug, which reminds me of a quote from a uh, a media studies class I took: uh, "Thought travels in the well-worn grooves of language." Oh, that's nice. And I should remember who the famous person was, but it's not coming to me at the moment. But speaking of uh, famous people and significant people, uh, we we like to steal liberally from other people's podcasts, including the Plastic Podcast. Yes, and uh, my lawyers have been in contact. <laughs> you have you have a great segment that allows you to kind of bring the guests forward into future episodes and kind of reflect back to what they said, called uh, the Plastic Pedestal. And both mm. Martin and I had the treat of uh, providing our plastic pedestal person, the person, the Irish diaspora person who was uh, most, most significant or influential. So we're going to turn the tables on you, Doug, who, who do you place on the plastic pedestal? Well, um, it's not such uh, a, a turnabout because I provided the first plastic pedestal uh, because I'd had no previous guests. Um, so, but uh, I, I, will, I will stick with my original choice and that's um, the broadcaster, Terry Wogan. Um, I don't know how familiar um, uh, uh, American listeners are with with, with, with Terry Wogan. He was something of an institution. Um, he uh, Dublin Dublin born. Um, no correction, but he was Dublin based uh, at first uh, and was a banker for a while uh, before he came across this country. Um, and in 1967, he was part of the original lineup of BBC Radio One and BBC Radio Two. Um, Terry uh, was. An institution, as much as uh, he was probably the the most listened to morning DJ uh, in the country. He had a, a remarkable way of speaking, a little like this. Hello there, listener. Yes, uh, incredibly erudite. Went off on flights of fancy. Very, very whimsical. Um, uh, but also, it's like um, I think I think he belied the the traditional notion of what an Irishman was. I mean, so there have been predecessors. I think, like to to a certain extent, Eamon Andrews, it's like uh, had, had had presented uh, a, a, a different view of of Irishness as a broadcaster. Um, um, and I think possibly Dave Allen, as a comedian, had, had done much the same. But where where, where Wogan was concerned, he, he managed to instill himself into instill himself into the hearts and minds of the British in a way that they didn't. Uh, he was he was there constantly, egging, urging, jollying along. Um, when he died, it did feel as though a member of the family had gone. And I think um, that was that, that was hugely important. I think he, he he paved the way for an awful lot of of, of, of Irish broadcasters in Britain, um, for them to be accepted as being witty and urbane and well read and and approachable and so forth, and not just simply that the the, the caricature that um, the, the the jokes about the Irish had, had created over the course of twenty, thirty, forty, eight hundred years, um, and. Also, more personally, when I was getting uh, confirmation at St. Joseph's Church in Maidenhead, my father was beside himself with joy, not because I was finally a member of the Catholic faith, but because there, two aisles up for us, making sure that his daughter was part of the same ceremony, was Wogan himself. Now, that, as far as my dad was concerned, was the icing on, 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 
on a very green cake um, uh, because he, he he lived kind of around around the Maidenhead area, which was um, not not surprising. Um, Fifty miles from London, a lot a lot of broadcasters kind of lived in that area, uh, and so to hear to hear Tell talk about the confirmation on his Monday show afterwards and so forth was just like yeah, pie in the sky for my dad. So um, I think for all sorts of reasons. Uh, both um, uh, personal and, um, and 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 also historical, and 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 and, f- and, and for being part of part, so managing to sort of think it's like a place um, put put a put a foot foot in the sand for for the Irish in Britain I th- um, um, in a way that um, few others were going to be, were capable of at the time. I think it would have to be Wogan, yeah. Yeah, you know, when I I think about Terry Wogan, there's a couple of words that jump to mind, and I want to be beloved, uh, mm. and the other one would be kindness. Um, he was a guy that was quite funny, but rarely at the expense of other people. Um, no. So he kind of, you know, proved the point that you you too can have a great career and be a good guy at the same time. But uh, speaking of kindness, um, we're getting to that point in our podcast where we introduce Seamus Plug. Uh, ah. We might like to pretend that it is a kindness that we extend to our guests, but indeed you are the one that is being kind by taking the time to speak with us. But let, let <laughs> us hear about your Seamus Plug. My Seamus Plug inevitably is going to be the Plastic Podcasts. Um, available to all and sundry, courtesy of the um, of, of of the website www.plasticpodcasts.com. Simply make yourself a, make your way across the episodes page, and there you'll find, I think it's now some forty four episodes. Um, the uh, the the uh, the podcasts have taken a bit of a change this year. Um, Whereas previously they've been um, uh, presented in tranches of, uh, of six episodes per per series and uh, two episodes per year, um, it's uh, with with a couple of specials uh, uh, thrown on in there. Uh, I'm now about to present them uh, as once a month um, throughout the entire uh, well uh, throughout the rest of eternity, I think. Um, and uh, it's it's. Um, the, the, each and every one I, I, I consider to be a, 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 a child. I, I don't. I, so we talk about Anthony Eckerdalen, but I don't actually have any favourites because each and every one is a, is a, is, a, is a different uh, a, a different offspring uh, in in their own in their own ways. But like um, I've decided to like, do one a month, partly in order to like uh, just make sure there's a constant presence there, and also partly because I think sometimes when I do six in a tranche and so forth, um, and one, one a week and so forth, it becomes a little too much for, 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 for the listener uh, to keep up with all the various different social media aspects that, that, that all inevitably come with, 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 with a project like this. So, so stretching it out means that um, this becomes um, not so much a series as, a, as an ongoing epic journey. Um, and um, by the time we talk, the the first episode of this ongoing epic, epic, epic journey will have already come out with uh, Declan McSweeney, a uh, Irish-born um, journalist, talking about um, the uh, the trials and difficulties of actually being an Irish journalist dealing with um, the local news in uh, in England, rather than being mm. na- a national journalist, and uh, and what he has to say about that. Uh, thereafter. Um, there are numerous interviewees. Um, we've got, um, artists. We've got a, um, uh, a, an architect who's also Irish traveler. Uh, we've got a, a producer of, um, of, uh, radio documentaries, including documentaries about the birds. Um, we've got, um, who else do we have? Um, a vast, vast array of forthcoming interviewees, but also I would so I say we've got a fair old backlog, my friends, a fair old backlog of some 44 interviewees. So if I'm going to plug anything, it's going to be the website, www.classicpodcasts.com. And of course, Doug, I hope I'm not going off message. It's, it's, it's on other podcast players as well. It's on other podcast players as well. Yeah. Other podcast players are available. However, on the website, you also get to read my blogs. You there see, you, go. you see, the there you go. The insights and otherwise. It is great. Like, you know, I, I like to scroll back through our own back catalog and, and I have that same feeling. People will ask, what's your favorite episode? And I think, well, there's this one. No, but there's this one. Well, there was also this one. I like this one. You know? Yeah. 
they're all. I'm sorry. They're, they're, they're um, Jar Wobble, um, uh, who was a bass player with uh, Public Image and so forth. It was wonderful to interview him because uh, it, the, it, basically it was him in his living room, uh, yes. and then as he went across to his kitchen in order to start put together a microwave meal and drop the plate um, <laughs> in, in, in the middle of it. I mean, Psycho, we were thoroughly professional at that point. Um, there, there have been three-way interview, interviews with members of the um, uh, Liverpool and Leeds uh, Irish social clubs. I'd love to do more Irish social clubs. Um, there was um, uh, the, uh, Dame Elizabeth Anionwu, um, um, uh, who is um, a leading nurse and practitioner in, in this country, but so part, part Irish, part Nigerian and so forth, um, who was raised in a convent. and so, Just fascinating stories all the way along. And all you have to go is sort of like, I am just so grateful, uh, so incredibly grateful that, that relative, in fact, perfect strangers are, are, are happy to so like, um, just talk and reveal themselves to me. It's quite incredible. Like that, they, we share your feelings there. We're we're so happy to be on this same uh, voyage of discovery, this trip through the diaspora. Bless you, gentlemen. The work that you do is incredible. I, I'm 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 huge. I'm a huge huge fan. And, and great to get the the English diaspora uh, feeling, both from from the diaspora in England, both from talking to you and then listening to your your podcast. So, anyway, Doug, it's great to be on this uh, global Irish diaspora journey with you. We, I'm really encouraged when you say for eternity. Uh, let's keep it all coming. Let's work, keep working together, and I foresee some good collaboration uh, among all of us down the road. Bless you, gentlemen. I'm looking forward to it. Well, Martin, that was kind of like talking to an old friend. Doug had us on his great podcast, The Plastic Podcast. And it was really great to, you know, a really fun guy to talk to and a nice mix of serious discussion. And you can see the natural comic actor that we were talking to come out frequently. Yeah, I'd say Doug is our English soulmate in a way because he's treading a lot of the same areas that we do in our podcast. And... One of the things that we do have in common is the long-form nature of our podcasts. A lot of times you're told, keep it down to the length of a commute, 30 or 40 minutes. What I think Doug expressed towards the end of the episode, and what I agree with, is that you can only really get to terms with what motivates a guest by really exploring in depth their experience. And you just can't do that in 10, 15, or 20 minutes. It takes time. And so that, I believe, is the real power of podcasting. The problem is with mass media news, it only ever gets at the veneer. I like to think that we, we being Doug, you, and I, get to some kind of significant level of depth that really engages our users and deepens the understanding of the Irish experience. And even with that, Martin, even with roughly an hour to speak, there's still always that feeling we're just scratching the surface. There's so many aspects to Doug's career we didn't talk about. We really didn't get too far into his Santa Claus career. There's other things I know he's done, and there's other episodes we could have gone to in depth. So even with an hour, there's so many more stories to tell. We hope we pointed you towards some good thoughts and good ideas and and helped you get to know uh, Doug Devaney. We certainly enjoy getting to know him better. And until the next time, folks, it's been a real pleasure. And if this is your first time hearing the Artist Stew podcast, don't forget to subscribe or follow or whatever your podcast app enables you to do so you don't miss another great episode of Irish Stew. Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty, with Donald Bowens on drums, Cahalo Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com. Music